Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Maliki, U.S. Editor of Waters, and I am joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello. So, first, I want to apologize to everybody. <laughs> Last week was not one of our finest showings. You know, I, I, I came in and I didn't really have much, and I, I brought my C game. And James didn't really, he wasn't ready to bring his, he, we just didn't really have it last week, and yeah. it wasn't a great show, if we're being honest here. We're sorry. Sometimes, you know, we get sick. 112 <laughs> of these things, you're going to have some lemons. This week, we're refocused, we're ready to bring you some good news. Um, we, I think we got a, actually a couple pretty good stories up this week. This has been a really good news week, actually. So we've got some good things to talk about. Uh, before we get into any of that... If you want to know who won our Women in Data and Technology Awards, we have that's up on waterstechnology.com right now. You can see all of our winners. I think it was like something like 21, 22 categories, something like that, uh, spread out across the industry. And those awards were held in London earlier today, Friday. Um, let's see, what else? We would normally, like I said, it's been, a, a, I guess, actually, a couple other things that you should go check out. Uh, that First of all, uh, James covered, uh, wrote our profile this month yep. for the f- March issue of Waters. <laughs> It'll t- don't worry, I'll get into this. Guys. It's going to be better, guys. Trust us. <laughs> feeling um, way back. Mike Urcioli, uh, JP Morgan Asset Management. He's the, He's C- the CIO. CIO yeah. JP Morgan Asset Management. Interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really good uh, profile of how he came from the trading floor equity space to kind of revamp. Yep. The asset management yeah. division. Something asset he did before. So he's kind of he was career Lehman for 19 years. He worked at the bank um, across FX, across fixed income, across equities. Uh, went to City to run its global markets tech. Then went to JP to run the investment banking tech. So like big trading floor kind of you know yeah. fast paced aggressive guy. And then went across to the buy side, which as we all know is something of a different pace. So it's all really about how he kind of managed that transition and and the way he kind of brought little bits of the trading floor to asset management while also kind of learning how they worked and it's a, it's a really interesting story so check it out okay and we also i should also let you all know that we have a couple new reporters with some more that are going to be joining us in a week or two but um let's hear about two weeks ago three weeks ago amelia amelia axelson uh she's our european reporter for the data titles not amelia david who's not amelia david amelia so you might get a little bit confused between those two i know i do um <laughs> and uh for us on the technology side here, uh, we have a new reporter, Josephine Gallagher, goes by mm-hmm. Joe. She's our new European reporter. Correct, yep, yep. Um, so if if you haven't made an introduction with them yet, please reach out to them. I'll put their email addresses on the website so you guys can reach out and hopefully catch up with them. Yeah, if look, you're we'll keep it simple for you guys as well. We just hire females named Joe. That's exactly. Much <laughs> Joe or me. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, let's hear this week, there was one big story that we're not going to get to, but NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, uh, was fined $14 million by the SEC, and the reason why it's interesting was it was for five different in- a- a- accumulation of five investigations. Uh, one of the big violations, though, that they, or some of the big violations stem from Reg SEI, which yeah. these are the first ever fines to be thrown out uh, or to, to hit a company for reg SI violations. It's quite amazing if you think reg SI was, what, 2014? Was it? it came like out that, yeah. It's like four years. Yeah, this is and the first time. It's uh, There's so much op- opacity to it. Mm. No one really understands it. So I'm sure we're going to get into that. Mm. We have a new story up about it that you can read and kind of get caught up on what this all means, uh, but we're not going to be talking about today. No. 
what we are going to talk about today is, uh, like I said, we had a lot of good stories this week, and that's objectively speaking. Like these, these, it was an interesting news week. And if there's a common thread that runs through several of these stories, it's going to be fintech. Um, For a change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this time, this is a little bit cool. This will, this will be a little bit of a different uh, discussion here. So on February 19th, uh, the UK Financial Conduct Authority and the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, they signed a cooperation agreement that links the CFTC's Lab CFTC initiative with the FCA's Project Initiative. So that allows them to innovate. share what? Project Innovate. Project Innovate. Yeah. That's the one. Don't ever correct me, James. <laughs> um, this allows them to share information, make requests, make referrals, stuff like that. This is interesting because that's, that was the first domino, I guess. The second domino, uh, this week, the European Commission released a report that is looking to build an EU fintech lab to promote blockchain and to review rules in light of emerging technologies like distributed ledgers, but like AI, things like that. Yeah. So, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about that report? Yeah, this is really massive. So, um, it forms part of the Capital Markets Union uh, project, which has been going on for a few years now. The idea being that it's going to break down national boundaries for things like um, movement of capital, regulatory practices, everything else, to really create a single market where you can ideally, if you're in one part of the European Union, you can invest in another part without any kind of friction between it. Um, mm-hmm. So, FinTech being part of that. Uh, there was actually three things they released this week. Uh, one was on fintech, one was on um, crowdfunding, and one was on sustainable finance. All really interesting, but in the interest of brevity, let's focus on fintech. Uh, so some of the key proposals were the EC is going to establish an expert group to assess the body of regulation that currently covers financial services within the block and whether those rules are sufficiently adaptable to handle some of the challenges that fintech poses. So, I mean, you know, are the rules fit for purpose, essentially? Uh, it's also going to establish a non-commercial laboratory uh, designed to educate regulators on current developments in fintech. Um, One of those other weird words that you Europeans say, laboratory is the way we go with it, but go on. Well, it's true, but it's actually it's spelled laboratory, so um, <laughs> you heathen colonial, it's my language. <laughs> um, I don't know why they're calling it a lab. It seems to be more of like a conference that meets four times a year, but the idea being they can bring all of the national competent authorities and national regulators up to speed on the latest developments in fintech, whether it's AI, whether it's uh, whether it's blockchain, um, whether it's anything else. I think the first one is going to be on cloud computing and outsourcing. Yep. Outsourcing seems a strange topic to pick, but you know, this new thing called outsourcing. Outsourcing. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't the FCA write a letter about this in like 2013 or something. I don't know. Um, one of the big moves also is that the EC proposes empowering um, the European regulators, so ESMA, the EBA, EOPA. Um, to identify best practice among national regulators when it comes to sandboxes. Mm-hmm. Um, these are environments that allow firms to kind of road test their software in regulated environments without hitting the wider market. So if there are problems, there's a gap in place. And um, what it's going to be doing is looking at kind of where they're doing it right, where they're doing it wrong, and kind of what the really the strategy should be for regulators who do want to set up sandboxes. Yeah. Um, and then finally, the last major initiative is around blockchain. Um, they're really going all in on this. They're advocating its use. Um, they're building expert groups. Uh, this is actually announced back in February, but they're taking concept, uh, concrete steps towards it now. Um, they're establishing a European Financial Transparency Gateway, which is a system um, based on blockchain, uh, which allows sharing of information across borders on listed companies. And there's going to be an expert forum um, that's going to track the development of technology and make recommendations for action at a European level where it's appropriate. What does this all mean? Um, So the European Union, I think, is clearly trying to position itself as the global hub for fintech. 
this is the idea behind it. Um, the UK has enjoyed its, I guess, preeminent position in Europe for a long time. It's kind of the place to go for fintech. Um, I wonder if there's a little bit of politics in this. Maybe because of Brexit coming up, the European Union is looking to kind of position itself, saying, okay, well, you don't have to go to London. Mm-hmm. You can come to Paris, you can come to Frankfurt, because, hey, guys, we've got a capital markets union. You know, it doesn't matter where you are inside the block. You can go to any of our cities and get the same treatment wherever you want to go. Um, as a corollary to that, I might be a bit miffed if I was the FCA saying, so Esmond wants to come in and look at Project Innovate mm-hmm. um, and tell us kind of how they did it and how we did it, sorry, and, and what we're doing right and where our pitfalls were, and then they're just going to copy it. I mean, well, I that's, so that's the one thing, and I, I wasn't sure if I was being cynical in this, but to me, when I was reading this, it kind of felt like, all right, the FCA and CFTC, that news was interesting because these are actual initiatives that they have Mm-hmm. That and they're trying to team up and work with each other. Where this yeah. one just kind of says, "Hey guys, we also we are concerned about this thing called fintech and blockchain, yeah. and so we have these things that I don't know. We'll meet every now and again. We'll discuss, and but it didn't really so felt like, the, the, like yeah. there was any sort of roadmap. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's definite politics in that FCA, CFTC release. That was the UK closing up to the US and saying." Two biggest markets for fintech in the world. You know, you can go between us and it's fine. Um, But yeah, this is very much the the EU now going, hmm, well, yeah, we've also got a lot more resources. And, uh, you know, a bigger market. And actually the reason why you were in London in the first place is because you wanted to access our market. So why don't you just cut out the middleman and and come to us? Um, So what was interesting as well was just the construction of it. And this is the way Europe does things. It's very, very strange. Uh, Like they say they're going to look at emerging technologies and try to be proactive about them. So we're going to look at blockchain, we're going to advocate its use, um, we're going to run these labs four times a year on AI and emerging tech and all the rest of it. They're not going to produce a report though until like, you know, the second quarter of 2019. Like a year from now, how much does technology move on in a year? Look at this discussion about blockchain now, where we are now, versus this time last year. Last year we were talking about pilots, proof of concepts. Now this year, even this week, we've had Swift turn around and say, yeah, our POC just failed massively. Yeah. The Nostro thing. Um, we have people who are using blockchain and derivatives exchanges and, and all the rest of it for crypto. Um, it just seems like a very odd approach. And this is very like classically European. And I wonder, actually, how much the, the FCA put input on this and whether that's the reason why it's been so it's a strange kind of reaction to it. Maybe they've started to pull back a little bit and go, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't be <laughs> contributing or writing all the rules anymore because it's clearly not working out in our interest. Yeah. Um, that's pure speculation. Uh, if anyone from the FCA or, or European Union wants to come on the podcast and dispute it, feel free. Um, but yeah, and also I think that's what AFMI said as well in the story. Um, so AFMI uh, gave a comment to us and just said, look, this is great, but um, it needs to be done quicker. And then I think the final point, the thing I find really strange, and this is something the European Commission has been doing lately, uh, which is proposing rules or proposing reviews of rules to make them fit innovative technologies. And that's not the way you should do it. Mm-hmm. Technology should fit the operating environment you're in. And Europe's done a really good job of MIFID II and EMEA and CSD reg over the last few years of putting a very, very firm structural um, sort of layer in place over markets, saying this is how we want them to operate. We want them to be transparent. We want them to function this way. Now you're talking about fast-moving tech, and you're talking about things that have very, very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of um, obscured outcomes. Um, right. So no one knows exactly what form machine learning is going to take in the markets. No one knows right. what form AI is going to take, or quantum or anything else. You shouldn't change your rules to fit things that are still in development. That's the Absolutely. fool's errand, you know? Yeah. 
Um, so the idea that they're going to set up a group to look at whether these things should be relaxed just seems like a uh, like it seems like discordant note to me. It's very strange. But, yeah. Well, so and I completely agree, and I and I think so. We're going to see that they say that in the second quarter of 2019 that they're going to put out uh, their first big report, and as you said, four times a year they're going to hold sessions to workshop uh, some of these issues. Mm. Let's see, I guess, what comes out of it. Uh, right now, I think that there is reason to be a little bit skeptical as to well, the use yeah. of this. Outsourcing but. is the first topic. Then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so I think that those kind of stories there, they highlight just how disruptive fintechs are becoming and really emerging technologies um, that everybody's kind of using both internally and at legacy firms. Um, so, so it's a new environment that we're in, and regulators are grappling with how best to oversee these entities. So that leads us to what was the biggest piece of news, certainly from the week, and a really, really interesting story here. Um, S&P Global, uh, they forked over $550 million to buy AI fintech startup Kensho Technologies. So Kensho is uh, backed by the likes of Goldman Sachs. Uh, it was formed in 2013 by Daniel Nadler. And what makes this acquisition so interesting is that S&P flat out came out and said that what fueled this deal is desire to basically become a leader in the field of AI it wasn't for some revenue stream or something like that. Yeah. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I was amazed. I mean, I remember actually you and me were working late and the, uh, the email came in on uh, Tuesday night, I think, and I was like, what the hell? Like, you know, S&P <laughs> is buying Kensho? I would have thought it would be like Goldman were taking a house or something, because I know that all the big banks are using them, yeah. like, doing partners with them. Um, so for S&P to snap them up is very strange. And so I, I kind of listened to the, the webcast the next morning, and yeah, they're very open about it. They just said, you know, in most acquisitions, you're buying a company that has revenue flows and it has uh, marketable products and that kind of thing. Sure. This, you know, the annual revenue is something like $20 million, and that's operating at a loss. Yeah. A, and they were very, very open about the fact that they weren't necessarily buying the company and its revenue streams. They were buying uh, the people. Well, this was the Doug Peterson, CEO of S&P, said, um, he, he said, this is not a routine acquisition. He said, quote, we're buying a startup company with proven talent and technology. We're not buying a business and with meaningful revenue or profitability. Which is just come out so saying, brutally honest. Right? I, I just want the people. I want the technology. <laughs> I want to rule the world because we'll make it, you know, we'll, we'll fit it in. It was really, really interesting. Well, it is, yeah. And it's, um, you know, um, listening to the call as well and... Um, you know, the, the CFO, Avalt uh, Steinberg, and was talking about it. And he said, it's just such a hard thing to quantify. And all these banks are saying, okay, well, you're going to put NLP technology in your product lines. You're going to put machine learning in AI and have all this intellectual firepower and become a leader. Like, you know, what does this mean on an, on an accretive basis for your earnings? And yeah. just, I can't answer that. Like, I mean, literally can't. Like, we have some ideas where we can put it in, but the, by the nature of what we're doing here, we have no idea what our technology stack or our product's going to look like next year. I it's, want this to work out. Because yeah. that's exactly what... That's the whole point. So what we were just talking about, you can't regulate for things that you have no idea Literally, yeah. how this is going to unfold. So this is exciting in a lot of ways in that they're saying, this is a smart company. This is a, a really cutting edge piece of technology here. They have some really smart people working for them. It's better just to do this now, get them into our house right now. Mm -hmm. This could go up in flames. Absolutely, because again, you know, how is Kensho going to react? As we always talk about this people, you know, are these PhDs that they have working for them, these data scientists that they have working for them, going to enjoy working for S&P and the projects that they're going to be geared toward? They were actually asked that during the call by the, uh, one of the bank sales and saying, you know, is, is there an element of key man risk here? Like, mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, getting this 
if you're buying BHA, talent, yeah. talent can leave. Talent can leave, and talent go anywhere else. And, yeah. and like, okay, it's Nadler's job to say this because he's on the, the call announcing the merger. But he was just like, look, we work with these guys. So S and P took a minority stake in Kensho about a year ago. Um, so we've been working with him since, and and he name dropped Marty Chavez, Goldman Sachs, as being sure. a uh, innovative leader. And but he said that uh, that uh, the CEO and the CFO were two of the most open-minded, forward-looking executives on Wall Street. He seemed to think it would work because he seemed to think that the company was willing to adapt its technology and, and change its perspective and change its stance on things in order to build this in. Because I think ultimately the key point of this was that they seem to believe that AI is a future. And they've made a big bet in it now. They've made yeah. a half a billion dollar bet on the fact that they think AI is a future. Um, and they seem to be allowing Nadler to come in and say, okay, we well, <laughs> need to change this, you need to change this, and this needs to be NLP enabled or whatever. Is it? Are they trying to try to get ahead of the competition? I wonder. Well, Doug Peterson better hope that this works out well yeah. because if for whatever reason that people feel that he's roadblocking projects or whatever, that he becomes a fall guy in this because mm. people are going to look at now and say, "Well, this is the genius that created uh, Ken Show." Yeah. You know, Ken, I don't know. I think that that could be really interesting. But I am rooting for this to work. I'm rooting for it at all. But it is. This is the ultimate test, I think, for FinTech, and this is the real test of whether you can get. This kind of fintech, and Kensho really is the archetypal, um, you know, Google, Microsoft alumni, yeah. Harvard, MIT, Princeton. You know, whenever you talk to a smart data scientist, they always talk about. Kensho. They always talk about Kensho, but they're also the kind of office where the guys have kind of like you know, yoga breaks and that kind of thing, all that kind of yeah. crap you expect from uh, tech companies, uh, and kind of integrate with kind of like Standard and Poor's Global, like yeah. you know, I mean. These guys, uh, these guys aren't just part of the fabric of the industry. Man, they're the concrete behind it. You know, these guys yeah. have been here for a long time. So, look, I hope it works. Um, whether it will or not, I don't know. I don't know how much power Nadler's been given inside S and P as results. Um, they had some pretty good results, I think, um, in terms of their financial results. So it's not like they're now grasping the straws to try and save the company. Sure. I want to believe that it's a, a genuine bet on AI being the future and a technology and someone actually putting their money where their mouth is, in this case $550 million of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the cynic in me is a bit too strong to believe that, but you know, we'll see how it goes. Just an angry man. Well, speaking of angry man, like mm. Marty Chavez uh, from Goldman Sachs, we've been trying so hard to, we, we were begging, like, come on, let, we, we, we want to write a profile. With the perfect we always, magazine, you know, come we, on. We, we're a technology capital markets publication. We get all the big CIOs, CTOs on the bank. Please come in. And what does he do? He goes and does a profile with the New York Times. Oh, oh come on. Come on. New York Times. Who wants to do profile? Everybody's been profiled by them. Only the elite, the, the best of the best. Only <laughs> the more catchy as well. Exactly. Exactly. By, uh, by Waters. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, next up, we have, I, I guess, so we've been writing a lot about fintechs and their disruption. And on Wednesday, James and I, we put out a feature that we think that you should check out. It's, a, it's, a real, it's long, about 3,000 words, but it's a deep dive at M&A and how fintechs are playing a major role in some of the acquisitions that we're seeing. So you know, we focused in on Ion and OpenLink, SSNC and DST, Thomson Reuters and Blackstone and Fidesz and Temenos. So, but, I spoke to a lot of people for that as well. I mean, I don't yeah. know from mine, I spoke to at least a dozen people. Yeah, it was, it's about sense. a couple dozen people that we spoke with uh, for the story, just to get a real industry feel for it. So it's, it's free to read. Go check it out. We have the link up. But um, the, the way that we see it is that this is a new reality in many ways. So our job in some ways is to obviously report on this, but also to kind of spotlight some of these up-and-coming fintechs. So, so what the next Ken show is going to be and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I think there are a couple interesting developments that are out there. 
first, I think it's it's interesting to consider, and this was a feature that we put up on Friday that was written by uh, Amelia David, Mia David, our reporter here in the U.S., uh, and it looked at how high-frequency trading firm TradeWorks decided to get out of the HFT space, officially become thesis group, and focus in solely on being a fintech firm and letting their uh, trading arm just kind of go off and create their own new entity. Um, Interesting point about that. Actually, I spent uh, two or three hours with thesis this week with Sadhav Mike Bella and, and Angela Zwan and mm-hmm. the rest of the people. Do you know TradeWorks originally started as a fintech firm in the first place? I did not know that. Yeah, apparently they started off as a fintech firm and then moved into the high-frequency trading, and then actually, technically, this is coming back home for them. So That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Been so, you see, coming back home, and then the, the, the feature also focused on how Next Group, uh, formerly ICAP, sold off its voice-broking system to Tulet Paran uh, to become a technology provider and also to invest more in fintechs through Next Opportunities. I know I didn't say it right. <laughs> Shut up. I'm an American. I don't like the French name. What, what, what is this Toulouse Prebon? I work for Improprod Digital now, man. Come on. <laughs> I knew I butchered that one right as I was saying it. Awesome. Um, so, t- so <laughs> take a step back. Now, on top of that, We've had some big names in the industry uh, go all in with fintechs. Mm. Uh, last week, James uh, wrote about former Ready chairman and Radian's uh, head, uh, Howard Edelstein, and how he's become the CEO of identity management specialist Biocatch, a fintech firm. Yep. And then earlier this week, I wrote about how Gil uh, Mandelzis, probably butchering that last okay. name, the co-founder of Triana and former, C- <laughs> former CEO of EBS BrokerTech, he joined forces with Tom Gloser. I always say that name wrong. I think it's Gloser. Gloser, yeah. yeah. But former CEO of uh, Thompson Reuters. So these are some big name people, and so they uh, started a peer-to-peer network for trading finance for trade financing. So these are some very very big name people that were at large institutions that were at one point fintech, well, not Thompson, but that were, you know, fintech kind of companies, built them up, sold them, you know, moved on. It is interesting to see so many people that we know well in this industry that are saying, you know what, right now the fintech space is really hot. We should be getting in on the ground floor of these startups that might go nowhere. There's there's no guarantee yeah. that, that these that these are true startups in every sense of the word. And what's There's the stat like? Four out of five fail or something? Is that every year? Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. I mean, how many of these do you write? So they're using their name to say, listen, we're trying to get on the board here. You know us. We built successful businesses before. We can do this again. How many people will buy into it? But I, I think that that's an interesting trend that we're seeing. Do, do you kind of have any thoughts about that? No, no, for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was actually at lunch with... Um, uh, with someone who's been in this industry for many years today, and they were talking about how uh, some startup approached them to do marketing, and they said, "Well, you know, what do you want out of this?" And I said, "Well, we want to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and we want to be on the front page of the Financial Times." And they went, "Okay, uh, who's on your board? <laughs> you get some money for that." And they went, uh, "We got a professor from the University of Warsaw," and they're like, "You know, you need these people. You'll be on the front page of Water Technology. Thank you. We maybe get you waters." <laughs> But no, that's, I mean, that's the key thing. Is that you have to have these heavy hitters now. I think the field is so saturated. And also, so many people are now um, transitioning out of the big firms, given what we've been writing about in the last few weeks, about this compression as well, that you, know, mm-hmm. you tend to get big people. Did. Like, I mean, look at uh, people like Matt Gill, for instance, who used to run technology for the LSE, sure. joining Torstone. And uh, yeah. 
You have uh, you know, Gil Mandelzis, you know, very, very well known. You have David Rutter, very, very well known, also ICAP, uh, doing R3. Yep. You have to have these names. And, and Howard Edelstein as well, going back to him for a second. I mean, he's... Um, it's been on every single board. Uh, uh, pretty <laughs> much, yeah. I mean, like, he ran uh, Thompson Financial ESG back in the day, which became Omgeo. And then he ran Radians, and uh, then he was the chairman of Ready, and then he was the chairman of Acadia Soft, I think, yeah. and he was on the board of Algomi and all the rest of it. Um, but yes, yeah, so you have to have it. I mean, you can't have that small... You can, sorry, you can have that small, scrappy startup, but you have to... If you want to really break through, really get written about, really get noticed, and you have to have the heavy hits. Well, and it's, it's, it's the way that they're describing their companies now that I think is really interesting that... You know, when I, when I started here about nine years ago, and you, you talk to a new firm, you know, even if it had a big-name person that came on, you know, they, they, they really wanted to make sure that they fit into what Wall Street firms or the street in London, whatever mm-hmm. they want to call it, but that you kind of fit that mold and that, that kind of idea as to what Wall Street is. Now these guys are saying, listen, Wall Street is, it's, it's, it's not that, it, it, it's, it's the old way of thinking. That, because so, there's, there's more of them than there are of the yeah. old guy. <laughs> you got like Elstein saying that, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Gil saying, uh, you know, he wants people to think of his firm in the Uber Airbnb model, kind of. That that's what they're trying to create. And that's the kind of thing that makes your balls suck up into your body when you hear this. Oh God, not again! You're not the Uber of this. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's just the way that they're now all the, every. That's how retail companies always like to say, "We are this of that." Yeah. They're all now trying to kind of go with this retail model because that's the whole thing is that we're so used to now using technology as individuals with our phones, with you know how we receive information, with how we conduct our online banking, stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. it really is bleeding over more and more. It seems like into the stodgy world of the capital markets. I think it's uh, more than that. I think it's just breaking down, kind of, or at least challenging the idea of of what has always been the way should it be the way moving forward I mean this is going off script slightly but still related to fintech because I did a story this week about um, Nasdaq considering parimutuel technology yeah. and, uh, that was actually interesting because it was like horse racing exactly <laughs> horse racing. Um, so if you're not familiar parimutuel is essentially pool betting um, where you kind of you know the winners um, divide the winnings amongst themselves and that's paid up by the losers Nasdaq thinks that could be used for um, exotic options and things like financial data releases or indices or whatsoever but it it's interesting because we've always done trading bilaterally. Like, there's always been a, you take up a position, your counterparty takes up the opposite position to you, and then whoever wins, whoever loses, that's sure. kind of way it's done. You maybe you don't need to think about things in that way anymore. And I think this is what a lot of these guys are saying, is that, yeah, we want to be the Uber or the Airbnb of, of trade finance, like uh, Gil was saying, because maybe the way it's been done isn't necessarily the way it should be done before. Yeah. We have the technology to do it differently. We have the capability. We have the, the brain power that hasn't been institutionalized to the extent the previous generations of Wall Street were, I think this is the way that finance is done, and this is the way it will always be done. People coming in saying, "Why shouldn't we change it up a bit?" You know. And I think a trap that I fall into, quite frankly, as just a reporter, um, you know. So I've been covering. So I, I worked uh, covering the retail banking space for a couple of years, but not really technology. Um, but so these last nine years, I've been covering technology, and you know, I get really excited about because I, I understand where they're going. Because again, as these technologies that they're talking about. I'm used to using, I can kind of get my head around it. I think though that, that that changing of hearts and mind, like when I go out, I have a bunch of friends who are, you know, hardcore traders, actual, you know, sit at big banks. I I go out, you know, we, we, we James and I try and go out uh, with sources that 
aren't in the technology world, but that sit on front office and stuff like that. And you talk to them, when they talk about technology, they don't necessarily care about that cutting edge thing still at the end of the day. It's, yeah. it's coming down to their Excel spreadsheet at the end of the day. And stuff. So it will be interesting. Are we experiencing a sea change as far as that is concerned, as far as an acceptance of these new cutting edge technologies rather than just saying the world, saying the world, oh, we have AI. Well, yeah, Do you and, truly understand it? I think so. And the key maybe isn't even technology. The key is in process. Like coming back to the Mike Ciotti profile I did, and, and the story of how he turned around technology at AWM. His strategy was he was he wants to come in and he wants to put agile methodology and he wanted people to deliver daily into production workflows and people weren't used to doing that and they just said you know no we do updates on a quarterly basis and yeah. I can't change the way I work to accommodate that so he took everyone in his senior team out to Silicon Valley and they went and saw a bunch of companies like you know some you can get some people probably didn't make the flight back you know but still yeah. <laughs> I think there was a bit of attrition in the ranks after that uh, and then when they saw people like automotive companies you know, like outside the financial industry wanting to rely heavily on technology just to see how they do things and they found things like DevOps things like agile methodologies things like um, you know uh, CICD were not exactly revolutionary in the industry so they were just kind of like things you do and they're commonplace because yeah. finance is such a incredible amount of not just technical debt but procedural debt as well yeah. That, and this is, I think, what we're saying. This is the beauty of fintech. It's not necessarily the technology. Anybody can do the technology, really, at the end of the day. Um, and finance is hardly lacking for PhDs and smart people who understand, you know, neural networks and all the rest of it. What finance's problem has always been, and I think people recognise this, has been the fact that it does things on a stratified basis. And the beauty of fintech is, and the real destructive element of fintech, isn't that it's ever going to replace a bank, never going to replace a CSD. What it is going to do is it's going to make them think differently about how they approach technology. And that's really, the I think, what is coming through in everything we've been talking about today in terms of what the European Commission's doing, in terms of what people like S&P Global are doing. They're recognising this and saying, OK, well, they see the writing on the wall and they think, OK, well, we need to adapt or, we need yeah. to, or we're going to die. So let's just buy these guys. Let's let them teach us how to do things differently and then sure. we go from there. So. And I think, so, so I guess maybe to connect the dots, you know, we, we talk about how, you know, cloud is making it easier to deliver tools, store vast amounts of data, not get locked in, cut down on costs, et cetera. We all understand cloud, we've been dealing with it for a long time now. Mm -hmm. um, now public clouds are becoming more and more prevalent, but that's, I guess, a different thing. Uh, new tools like AI, machine learning, RPA, distributed ledger, these are starting to populate the market. And so fintechs take advantage of the... Uh, the scale that cloud can allow public uh, providers like AWS, Google, IBM, that they can provide. They're taking advantage of that, and they're, deliver they're, they're building these new tools into their, from the ground up, rather than trying to pigeonhole, you know, kind of new tools into legacy systems. Square pegs and round holes, yeah. Exactly. So, so this is how they're proving to be disruptive. And there's a lot of cool stuff to go and try out. Now, you are a big bank, a large asset manager. You already have enough. Vendors, you're already struggling with um, uh, what is Bill uh, Bill Murphy always like to talk about a technical debt, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I guess that, that that kind of leads into a little bit of the reason for the start of this last piece that we're going to talk about is um, a new industry group called FDC3, which stands for Financial Desktop Connectivity and Collaboration Consortium. Um, which is aiming to create a common language for desktop app interoperability. All those words sound insanely boring. <laughs> I mean, incredibly. Like, when I told James, like, this is actually an interesting story, he goes, desktop interoperability is going to be interesting. The, literally, my first reaction was, I was, 
we've just moved seats, um, so I've got this great view of the East River right now, and then these big like floor-to-ceiling windows. And I was generally wondering if I could throw myself with enough force to break it down. Fucking <laughs> um, <laughs> desktop app interoperability. God damn it, Tony! It's Friday. It's Come Friday. On, it's oh. Friday too of all days. <laughs> so. There are some major players. So there's 20 uh, firms involved. You have Barclays, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, RBC, uh, uh, TPI Cap, uh, Alliance, Ber- Alliance Bernstein, uh, Citadel, uh, Algomi, ChartIQ, Cloud9, Faxet, Fidesa, Greenkey, Otas, and this is all being led by OpenFin, the operating system. What they are trying to do is create the equivalent of the fixed protocol for desktops, which would enable desktop applications to communicate with one another via common protocol the same way that FIX created a common protocol for server-side communications between systems. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spoke with uh, Kim Prado at RBC Capital Markets, and she said, you know, basically the, the desired end goal here is to create kind of an app store. They just want, she wants her employees to be able to go into an app store, buy something and have that piece of, have that app, have that new tool, have that new platform, be able to communicate with all the other um, apps on that employee's desktop. You have to have buy-in from the buy side, you have to have buy-in from the sell side, you have to have buy-in from the sellers, they have, uh, from the vendors. It has a long way to go. It has a big hill to go up. But this, this is... This is I mean, it the interesting thing about it. It's like, I mean, it doesn't exist already. Why is it not markup to transfer between your your frameworks? Uh, markup in a framework that everyone uses, sorry, to transfer between your applications. Like, if you go on your phone and uh, you click a Spotify link on your web browser, it will open up Spotify and it will load that playlist for you. Sure. You're like, why yep. is this so hard to do on a desktop? It's, well, think about, like, you know, the, the desktop... So the operating system... You know, OpenFin created an operating system specifically for finance, mm-hmm. and they just looked to challenge that. It does, th- these other operating systems, they didn't care as much about finance. They were used to using it. You know, it made me like a Linux or something like that, never kind of thought, this is the way of the future. This is the way that we should be trying to undercut, you know, the other operating systems mm-hmm. out there. It's you have to have the vendors want to say, okay, we're going to wrap our uh, our platform yeah. in OpenFin. That is a big ask. You can make an API call through this yeah, functionality to do it, and they'll do it. But you have individuals from Barclays, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, RBC, Alliance Bernstein, Citadel, saying, you should do this. This will be good for you. Yeah. And that, that was really impressive, actually. That list of names they had there. I was like, well, okay, you know what? That's almost critical mass right there, you know? That's, you know yeah. If you can start to make that push, and then that allows you to, that will be good for the vendors too, to say, I'm a market data vendor. Now, will the big vendor, I mean, fact, that's part of it. You know, will some of the other big, you know, market data providers want to get into this? I don't know. Yeah. But if I am, like, one of the smaller ones, or I have this data platform that I want to be able to deliver this information, I should get on that maybe because maybe that gets me in front of RBC and uh, Barclay much easier than having to have them create new APIs specifically to connect to my system. Well, I mean, like and also, just I mean, like, think off the top of my head here, but you know, the amount of work that people like Symphony are doing in terms of collaboration with Thomson Reuters and with um, various other firms as well. If you can get people like those on board, you don't necessarily need those people because you can put yeah. something in to call that through the application, so it becomes like a kind of a leapfrog thing. So. Yeah, I think it's got legs. Like as long as and it's what Kim Prodi said, right? Um, yeah. Also, one of our women in technology and data awards winners. Yep. Um, 
And she said, you know, I just really hope it works. If we just keep it going, keep momentum going, then, you know, it should do. So, yeah, the yeah. vendors can get on. But, again, it's got a long way to go, but it is an interesting thing. That article is available online. You can read more about it and uh, check it out. So hmm. I think we did a good job there on the fintech. I think so, yeah. You know? It's a bit more alive than last week. But, exactly. Uh, my voice doesn't quite recover, but... I don't feel like I want to die <laughs> quite as much. There's always that underlying kind of, you know, misanthropy. But like... To be fair, we are also uh, drinking Revolution Brewing, their anti-hero India Pale Ale. We did decide to do this powered by IPA. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it helps bring a little bit of an extra energy. Yeah, yeah. Let's finish up. We're, neither, of our, neither of us are movie buffs. I, I think I watch more current uh, films than you maybe watch. I used to be a film reporter back in the day, you know. That's, that's actually funny, yes, yeah. that's true. I've yeah. become not a film buff. For the first five years of my career, I was um, yeah, I was a film journalist. Uh, and then that actually probably turned me off films. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk a little bit about the Oscars here. Mm-hmm. Did you watch any of the films that were up for uh, Best Picture? I saw Get Out. Okay. I saw Three Billboards. Yeah. Uh, Shape of Water. Yep. Um, I haven't seen Dunkirk. Um, and I saw The Post. So okay, oh, there you go. So, so yeah. 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 To me, The Shape of Water, it's it, it was it was almost a makeup for La La Land winning, I felt like. It it had that nostalgic Hollywood feel, but you know, it's like, oh well let's add uh, a merman and guns and violence into mm. it. And that will tip over uh, what La La Land well, was. I mean, look, it's all a big allegory, right? You know the whole thing? It's just, yeah, it's like the creature in the Black Lagoon getting yeah. his end away with the research. But it's all an allegory about... The, the old school Fred Astaire dancing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The black guy and the white girl and all the rest of yeah. it. Sort of, you know. And that was a real theme of this. It was a very politicised Oscars. I think. Yeah. Um, not in a bad way. Uh, I think, you know, these issues need a lot of attention brought to them. And Actually, I liked uh, Jonah Goldberg from uh, National Review wrote a good article about how... It's like, if you actually do care about, uh, you know, things like ratings, uh, you might want to stop just shitting all over half of an audience here, even if you do agree with the reason for it. Well, look, I mean, Hollywood's been so savaged over the last sort of what I'll call the Tea Party slash kind of... uh New Republican Party years yeah. of being just a liberal bastard, they've just yeah. bought in now. Like, yeah, like, screw let's go. Let's Fine. go. <laughs> we'll stop pretending. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. But I will say that, like, I felt like The Shape of Water was one of those movies that. I'm gonna for it. I'll make some jokes about fish sex scenes and the Kanye West um, South Park episode of <laughs> fish sticks. Um, sticks, I'm saying there, but that's basically the joke of that whole episode. It's a great episode. But for me, um, Three Billboards, Dunkirk, Get Out, uh, The Post wasn't nearly as good as Spotlight, so I'm not gonna give that one, you know, yeah. and I mean. But, um, Interesting story about Francis McDormand, though, from Three Wolves. You know how Oscar was stolen during the uh, after party? This one? Yeah, some, won? some dude literally like was walking around with it going, I can't believe I won this, this is amazing. Nothing new whatsoever. He's getting people to congratulate him. And uh, one of the, the paparazzi like didn't recognise him from the winners and like followed him and was just like, who the hell are you? And he went, oh yeah, this isn't mine. <laughs> <Go back to him. laughs> well, Francis McDormand, so... Her her winning Best Actress, thank God, because she was amazing yeah. in that film. So, I mean, that was one of the better performances. And then her just, she's crazy. She's like, 
She's what I want out of Hollywood. I don't want these stuffy, like, I'm going to be... I like crazy she, Hollywood. She won the Oscar. She went to the after party. And then she celebrated by going to In-N-Out Burger and having a takeaway <laughs> burger. <laughs> Which, if you've ever had In-N-Out Burger, I can completely understand. Because, God, I wish that came to the East Coast. Yeah. yeah. But, it, so, it was interesting. Uh, that one, best... I, I'm happy Del Toro won for... Because he deserved yeah. to have a best director. Del Toro, but he's been long overdue. He's such a good director. Yeah. And he's made such a contribution to film. Yeah, as well. Like even the, and like maybe maybe now they'll let him make At the Mountains of Madness, which is his pet film he's always wanted to make. What is it? At the Mountains of Madness. At the Mountains of Madness. Have you ever heard of an author called H. P. Lovecraft? No, but I don't read a lot of love stories. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like cosmic horror from like the thirties. Um, okay. He himself was a particularly unpleasant individual, like very racist and all the rest of it. But, um, <laughs> the story is is really cool, uh, and it's like called Cthulhu, and it's inspired a whole like kind of thing. Uh, and he really wants to make the film, but uh, it would have cost $150 million at the time, and it was an R rating, and the studios went, no, I'm not going to spend that money. But now they're spending $500 million yeah. on films. So maybe this gives him license to make the projects he actually wants to make, and he's just incredibly talented. Like, Del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth is an amazing film. Uh, mm-hmm. All the stuff he's worked on, um, you know, he had a huge hand on The Hobbit and things like that as well, was great. Uh, his earlier stuff as well, um, Existence and that kind of thing, is just incredible. No, yeah, it, it, it was good. So I'm happy he won Best Director. I don't think that The Shape of Water deserved Best Picture for my, you know, for, for what I, I think that's a movie that we will not be talking about in five years. No, no one's going to The same way, you know, La La Land, I don't think we'll be talking about that in five years. You know, these are movies that kind of come and go, but they try and cap, they win Best Picture, or, or La La Land, quote unquote, wins Best Picture, even though <laughs> Moonlight was the actual one, the actual winner. But because they try, they actively tries to kind of bring out that Hollywood nostalgia. The directing of it, I can appreciate the directing of it. Yeah. I just the movie as a whole, I thought that you know Dunkirk was just holy crap that you know you're sitting on the edge of your damn I seat. Seen it. I, really I, I, I was sweating it. by the end of it. Um, For a and film then, about a bunch of guys on a beach. Yeah, it? and then three billboards. Just you know that that's dark it's humor just is a great. Film, yeah, it, I love dark humor too. And so. Get Out was a great film. Like, was like, and Get Out you know, brought a whole new genre, which is why I'm happy that so. Um, Oh, God, but, um, Jordan Peele, mm. him winning for a screenplay that I was thrilled about because also that's as writers, yeah. you know, you've had. Th- let's see this list of some of these guys that have won for best screenplay, and now you're adding Jordan Peele to it. But Spike Jones, Quentin Tarantino, Woody Allen, uh, Cameron Crowe, um, both Francis Ford Coppola and Sofia Coppola, uh, the Coen Brothers, um, Mel Brooks, Orson Welles. Um, Bud Schulberg. That's, Some, an, that's an August list, isn't it? And so, so it's yeah. like, it's cool to have him part of that. Yeah. Um, and also, in horror like, films are going to have a tough time winning. Exactly. You know, Even though a science fiction okay, film won this year, like, which almost never happened. So, but like, you so see the, the competition you had this year from Darkest Hour, which was a film which was almost built frame by frame to be an Oscar winning film. Mm-hmm. I think I was pissed about. Um, Dunkirk, which clearly I thought must be him with the chance for the Oscar for this. Yeah. Um, even Three Billboards is like an Oscar kind of worthy film and the yeah. way things are tackled and yeah. So it was never going to win Best Picture. I think what they did was they, that was a very definite nod to the quality of the film saying that. Um, documentary. Were you surprised by Icarus? I was surprised by Icarus because I hadn't watched it mm-hmm. when I saw it and it, I had seen Last Man in Aleppo which just kind of ruined me. It, it was just, it, it just, it was an emotional watch, um, movie. Did you watch Strong Island as well? Or? I didn't see that one. That's no. also another harrowing. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. So it's like going up, and I'm like, doping a, a film about bicycles, doping. Come on, this that's surprising. I watched it literally <laughs> last night on Netflix. What 
a great documentary. Isn't it? It's great. Oh my god. Starts off as being, you know, super size me but for steroids. Mm-hmm. And turns into, let's bring down the whole Russian doping, you know, program. Absolutely a gigantic documentary and such great journalism done. Oh, my God. But again, and that's not to say The Last Man in Aleppo was not great. That one just kind of ruins you. Yeah. Yeah, that, it, it, yeah you just it, leave it with such a bad taste. It's, 90 minutes or so, I'm punching in the stomach. Oh, God. It's yeah, right yeah it's, it's great. You, you Watch it. Please watch it. But... This one was it. The what made this one unique was you've had those kind of movies, Last Man in Aleppo, because there's always going to be tragedy. Mm-hmm. Is trust me, every single year, there's no end to documentaries, documents, and please, this is why we have documentaries. Keep those going. We've had a great run recently. Yeah, it's been good. So this one was just interesting because it started off as one thing. Just kind of just feel. Oh yeah, I'm going to create super size you, but I'm going. I'm going to. The premises. The director. He's. he's Gonna race in this Tour de France esque uh, cycling race. One year he's gonna do it clean. Next year he's gonna do it on steroids to see you know if he can improve because of the steroids. Funny thing about it was the this isn't giving too much away in the beginning here, but you know this is how the, the movie starts. Just that it, the results don't end up quite the way you imagine, but it's not because the steroids are working. It's just there was just some stupid thing to happen. So he's kind of nowhere. All of a sudden this absolutely insane story just kind of falls into his lap it really mm-hmm. felt like it was truly a great great documentary yeah. and a lot of fun to watch so talking about my boy Sam Rockwell for a second as well of course Sporting actor. even though I thought Woody for me Woody was the great well, supporting actor in that film look at the other finalists in this Sam Rockwell I think is one of the finest actors of our sure. generation but Willem Dafoe incredible yep. actor Woody Harrelson incredible actor mm-hmm. Richard Jenkins I mean Christopher Plummer man that's people you're going up against you wouldn't yeah. well done Sam Rockwell well done and yeah and yeah. he was great you know for me I would, just from that movie I would have gotten Woody but no big deal and then best actor I'd never I haven't seen Darkest Hour so I can't comment on Gary Oldman look uh, good yeah, but he was he, 100% for the second he signed for that role you think he knew he was going to win the Oscar <laughs> well I was just thinking anytime you go up against Daniel Day-Lewis I didn't I haven't seen Phantom Thread but I just assume that if Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be nominated so, he's going to deserve to it's win it's the Daniel Day-Lewis award for best actor <laughs> isn't it <laughs> incredible and then uh for me, the, the the last big one for me was uh, C.J. Craig, Allison Janney winning, yep. um, and she was I Tanya. Was a good movie, solid movie. Yo, you, you kind of know every. I'm kind of nauseated with the whole, you know. Uh, uh, I've had enough of Tanya Harding coverage, I guess. Yeah. With that said, Allison Janney was absolutely amazing as uh, Tanya Harding's mother mm-hmm. in that film, uh, and so that was cool to get to watch her win as. Uh, as somebody who's a huge, huge uh, fan of uh, the West Wing. Sure. And I think um, and Blade Runner run, run, well, won the right ones as well. Yeah. You know, cinematography and uh, visual effects. Yeah. Like and the then show. the last one was uh, everybody like, talking about, ah, oh, Kobe Bryant won. So you have this whole night about it was celebrating the movement of Me Too and calling out actors and everything like mm-hmm. that. I'm amazed that Kobe Bryant was... That was uh, he was um, uh, charged, I guess, with rape. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't convicted, but uh, you know had that. You know, worst cases, he was definitely cheating on his wife. 
with somebody it's who might have yeah. still give Oscar Severian Polanski. So yeah. <laughs> and Woody Allen we mentioned Woody before, Allen, yeah. A yeah. um, couple times he's won uh, I do think uh, I think Logan uh, was robbed for Adapted Screenplay. Have you seen Logan? Yeah. yeah. Incredible. I think and that should have won for Adapted Screenplay, I think. Yeah, that was a really good dark. You know, what did, did not have a super a superhero kind of feel to oh, that no, movie. It was, it was a just, western, wasn't yeah, it? Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, the Blu-ray version I have, well, I've got the UHD version I have, it comes with a noir version of it, which is amazing to watch as well. Oh, really? It's like black and white, but actually been color graded to suit it rather than just putting a filter over it. It's nice. really worth watching. Yeah. Yeah, I'll check it out. It's cool. Alright, well hopefully y'all enjoyed it and uh, we will be back. We, we, we will not, it will be a, li- a little while before we give uh, a bad performance like episode we'll, we'll try 111. Well, how are we going to do it next week? I'm going to be in Boca. You're going to be in figure out yeah huh. shit <laughs> <laughs> literally going to be phoning it in uh, not figuratively or you know <laughs> but literally phoning it in um, well we'll figure that one out so but join us we will be here um, and if you have any thoughts on any of the um, topics that we brought up about fintech or the Oscars or Reg Sci or anything like that please reach out to us we'll be interested to hear yeah uh, James will be down at FIA Boca, so if you see him, tell him what we're doing right, tell him what we're doing wrong. Tell him you want to be on the podcast, because we need guests. Yeah, so, that's, yeah, yeah, we're going to bring in some guests, you know, we, enough yeah, of us. Christ, talking. if you want to do that, we can do it there. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's what we'll do. Maybe that's what we'll do. On the fly. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for joining us this week. We will be back next week. Enjoy your weekend. Goodbye, everyone.